1: Welcome to the Elevate Orthonics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of our show. We have a unique episode this week, a little bit uh, different than ones we've done in the past for a number of reasons. Uh, The first being that this is our first episode with a return guest. We have Dr. Greg Jorgensen back on the Elevate Orthonics Podcast. Dr. Jorgensen was one of our first guests back near the beginning of the podcast, and uh, he's come back to talk a little bit more about obstructive sleep apnea and orthodontics. And I think this is a topic that we are all very interested in. Uh, Another reason why I think this episode is a little bit unique is that uh, neither Dr. Jorgensen nor I claim to be an expert on uh, obstructive sleep apnea or uh, sleep disordered breathing. And what you're going to really find in this episode is kind of two orthodontists who uh, have an interest in this topic, who uh, are trying to kind of sort through all the different opinions and, uh, you know, scientific information that's out there and try to come to a little bit of consensus. So, you know, in some ways, this is maybe not the, uh, the expert kind of preaching from on high. Rather, this is a conversation between a couple of your colleagues sharing, I think, some of the information that was presented at this AAO midwinter conference uh, down in Florida, and also trying to kind of interpret it and to give some commentary. So with that, I'll say that, uh, you know, perhaps some of the comments that we'll make are going to be somewhat inaccurate. Perhaps you uh, as a listener or maybe as someone who has more of an education or an opinion on this topic might have an objection to something that we say. And, and I'd love for you to tune in to to comment on our Facebook group, to send me an email, to offer to come onto the show yourself and to perhaps present another viewpoint or another alternative Uh, I think as we kind of work our way through this issue and try to figure out what the role of orthodontics and orthodontists is in this discussion of sleep apnea and sleep disorder breathing, uh, we certainly welcome any carefully considered and and well-meaning viewpoint that's out there. So we're going to get into the interview here in just a second. But before we do, I wanted to share a a kind of a thought that I've had uh, on my mind for a little bit. Uh, Last weekend, I climbed Mount Washington here in New Hampshire, and this was a true winter ascent. We had crampons and ice axes, and you know we were making our way up these snow-covered hills. I'm also planning a similar trip to hike Mount Rainier in June. Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying being up in in these kind of wintry conditions. It's it's pretty exciting. But these cold weather adventures, they require a tremendous amount of gear compared with three season backpacking. So, naturally, the goal when you're out on one of these trips is to reduce your pack weight as much as possible. And thinking, you know, as I've been thinking about saving ounces in my pack, it kind of led me to the natural conclusion that perhaps, you know, losing 10 pounds would be a more logical and effective method than obsessing over which material my camp spoon should be made of. So, Perhaps for a slightly different reason, I am nonetheless joining the millions of Americans trying to lose weight. And although I'm surely not the first person to draw this conclusion, I, I've been thinking a little bit about the similarities between physical fitness and financial fitness. And there's one point in particular that that I, I'd like to make here. When we survey the weight loss landscape, we find these radical or restrictive diets, we find these proprietary prepared foods or sometimes even pills and medical procedures that are put forth as possible solutions. And I think the attraction of these products is the thought that they can deliver results without requiring the user really to make any significant changes in their lifestyle. In a similar fashion, we see these promotions in the financial marketplace. Those that are advertising in the loudest and most brazen fashion are always promoting their exceptional investment returns. And as investors, I think most of our conversation revolves around which advisor or which strategy to use. We read financial publications to understand markets in order to gain a supposed advantage. And we often spend our lunch breaks at orthodontic conferences regaling each other with stories of our successful real estate, cryptocurrency, alternative or private investment deals. Unfortunately, in chasing returns, I think we're focusing on the wrong thing if our goal is financial independence. Just like these fad diets and superfoods that we see listed on the covers of the magazines in the checkout line, an overly strong focus on investment returns leads us to spend most of our time, I think, barking up the wrong tree. So let's go back to my desire to lose 10 pounds. While I'm not a fitness expert, I think it's uncontroversial to say that in order to affect a lasting and healthy change, my focus has to be on behavioral issues. Recreation, exercise, diet, sleep, stress management, those seem to be the main factors. And in the world of personal finance, uh, the role of investor behavior is also being recognized as the most important factor. The 2017 Nobel Prize was given to Dr. Richard Thaler in recognition of his work on behavioral economics. So what are the behavioral factors that we all need help with? And I can think of a few, and I'll give you a little list here, Uh, Number one, designing a personal cash flow plan with an adequate savings rate. Uh, Number two, managing debt reduction versus business investment in spite of whatever biases we might bring to the table. Number three, choosing an asset allocation and sticking with it during both good and bad markets. Uh, Number four, having a Goldilocks amount of insurance, you know, not too much or too little. And number five, making those hard but rewarding decisions about work-life balance to avoid burnout. If this list doesn't sound as glamorous as buying puts on line Technology in 2018, it's because it's not. However, working on these important behavioral and planning tasks will inexorably lead you to your goal of financial independence. So if you want to lose weight but need help with the right behaviors, you can hire a personal trainer. You might also need a coach for your personal finances. The takeaway here is to get help mastering the simple behaviors that lead to success and not get caught up in the latest craze and the pursuit of high investment returns. You can certainly do this on your own, but if not, get with someone who can help you make a plan and help keep you accountable. That's an advisor worth paying for. All right, so without any further delay, we'll jump into the interview with Dr. Greg Jorgensen. Dr. Greg Jorgensen is a board certified orthodontist practicing in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. He received his undergraduate degree from BYU, his dental degree from Washington University in St. Louis, and his master's in orthodontics from the University of Iowa. Dr. Jorgensen has served as the president of both the RMSO and the New Mexico Association of Orthodontists. He served for eight years on the AAO Committee on Technology and is currently serving on the Council on Communications. Dr. Jorgensen has published numerous articles in the AJODO, the JCO, and Orthodontic Products Magazine. He's been featured multiple times as a guest lecturer on the Practical Reviews and Orthodontics series and speaks nationally and internationally on website design, internet presence, social media, and reputation management. Many of us have benefited from his fantastic summary of the 2019 AAO Winter Conference on Sleep Apnea. We're pleased to have Dr. Jorgensen back on the podcast as our first return guest. Dr. Jorgensen, welcome back to the Elevate Orthodox podcast
0: well thank you lance it's great to, to be here uh, i'm glad i'm around to do a second one
1: <laughs> we're, uh, we're we're thrilled to have you back and i'm excited to talk about a couple of topics that I think our guests are going to find uh, really interesting of course we're going to talk a lot about the uh, winter conference here and and some of these topics of sleep apnea and then maybe if we have a little bit of time we'll uh, we'll follow up on our previous podcast uh, about things with board certification and uh, the American Board of Orthodontics. But let's jump right in and start talking about sleep apnea. And I think uh, you and I were talking briefly here in in the pre-interview about the fact that neither you or I necessarily are are experts in sleep apnea per se, although we're orthodontists, we're very interested, we're we're willing to learn. And I think, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out this issue of sleep apnea affects us in our practice And I think you've really taken the initiative here by trying to inform some of us and and write up a little bit as someone who attended this meeting. So I'm talking a lot here, but let me let you get in here and talk a little bit about uh, the AAO meeting. Tell us a little bit about the vibe at the winter meeting, um, kind of the setting, the location and what your goals were when you went down to Florida.
0: Well, I will tell you, Lance, that I'm glad you read my bio because those who listened will notice it said nothing about sleep apnea on there. I, I am a complete novice when it comes to sleep apnea. I'm very interested because like TMJ in the 80s, I think that this is an important thing to know a lot about, and, and we should know what we can do, what we can't do, and, and it should just be as comfortable with us as all the other topics that we discuss and things that we screen for and all that. I want you to know that when I went down to Florida, I went down because it has become such a big issue Thing In in a lot of advertisements, you see a lot of speakers speaking on it and all that. And I went down completely unbiased. I wanted to know, what is the truth? I wanted to know, is there something that we can do to help these patients? Is there anything that we're doing that hurts these patients? Is there something, uh, you know, what's our role? And so as I went down there, I didn't have an ax to grind. I surely don't make any money talking for or against this. And uh, so I went down there. I went with my son. My son is actually doing his thesis uh, over in Arizona. He's in his residency right now. He's doing his thesis on, on CBCT and examining the airway using CBCT. So he was very interested in it. And so uh, Brent and I went down there with open minds. Uh, I knew kind of what was going to be happening down there because I had talked to Dr. Barrett's about almost two years ago, at least a year and a half ago, about the project that he was involved with. And um, he was on the task force, and uh, he kind of organized it. For the listeners who have not taken a chance to look at the white paper that was released, uh, if you look at the list of the task force members, you'll notice Dr. Barents was the uh, chairman of the task force. And on the task force, as some have pointed out, the majority are orthodontists. There are some who are not orthodontists that are on there. Uh, our general counsel was on there uh, the, uh, you know, from the legal department, and we did have um, a clinical professor of neurology who is a sleep med- medicine specialist from University of Michigan. But they're right. Most of the people who are on here are uh, experts in growth and development from an orthodontic point of view. But there are 14 members on that task force and a lot of people have said, well, there you go. It's going to be biased. But if you went to the meeting, what you noticed was that there were 20 speakers there. And of the 20 speakers, seven of them were not orthodontists. And the other 13 were either dentists or, or orthodontists. And so we have seven who were not in any way related to the uh, the dental field. So th- that kind of gives you a background of who was involved here. Yeah. As I went down there and sat in the meeting, first of all, you ask about the meeting, it was, it was very well attended. In fact, it's one of the only times, and I was the chairman of the meeting down in Fort Lauderdale just a couple years ago on technology, and I think we had two or 300 people there. We were happy to have that many there. At this meeting, we had over 1,000 that were enrolled. Every chair was taken. The, the hotel was sold out. This was a big deal. A lot of people wanted to know, to, know about this, yeah. and so it, there was excitement in the air, it was very well organized. And we had uh, we had neurologists. We had uh, sleep pathologists. We had otolaryngologists. We had uh, dentists who provide a lot of sleep apnea, oral appliances. We had pulmonologists. Uh, we had pediatric sleep medicine people. We had people from all those. We had uh, oral surgeons. And then we had some orthodonts too. So that kind of gives you an overview of who was there and, and, and how the meeting went down.
1: You know, I think... We're not going to spend any time in this podcast talking about, you know, what sleep apnea or sleep-disordered breathing is. Uh, I think many of us are familiar with that. Uh, but you know, suffice it to say, this is a, you know a serious condition, and to the extent that we affect it either positively or negatively. Um, You know, I think orthodontists uh, are concerned with that for sure. And I would definitely encourage people, you you mentioned the white paper, uh, to go online and to download this and and to read it. You know, I I got a copy of it and it sat in my inbox for a couple days or or maybe longer, if I'm totally honest. But when I finally uh, read through it, I was really impressed. And it was it was a total great use of my time it was very succinct. It's it's not an overly lengthy document. You open it up, I think it's like 50 pages, but don't get freaked out because a lot of that is like appendices and citations and things. You know, people should, should read this document and really get a sense of the summary of, of people who've spent time investigating this and, and reading this. So- you know, what we're going to talk a little bit about in this interview, I think, is, you know, your impressions from this meeting and kind of your takeaways. And I think, so like you mentioned, some of the things that you're going to be relying on maybe aren't even necessarily you know, your opinion or, or your research findings, but just kind of a, a reporting back on the findings of this meeting. And, you know, like I say, two orthodontists here uh, on the line together, just trying to talk a little bit about how this affects us and how this affects our practice. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis, which I think, uh, you know, maybe is a good place to start. As you went to the meeting. You know, we certainly have people, and and uh, you mentioned even your son interested in trying to understand. Are there things in the orthodontic office that we can do to diagnose sleep apnea? Either those are are they radiographic? Are they uh, subjective? Are they you know questionnaires? What were the kind of summary findings uh, from the meeting and, and from the white paper on on the role of the orthodontist in diagnosing sleep apnea?
0: Let me start off. First of all, I just want to add two more thoughts that came to my mind as you were just going through that, and then I will go to the diagnostic summary. First of all, one of the the, the things that I have heard in our profession, in the dental community, and outside the dental community since this meeting is that this is the AAO's attempt to cover up all of the harm that we have caused in orthodontics over the years, and I just thought, I think that this is a, it's, it needs to be brought out, first of all, I don't understand what the motivation would be for the AAO to not go into this meeting with the idea of, hey, if there is something we can do to help these kids and these patients, why wouldn't we want to know it? They reviewed for two full years over 4,000 articles and brought in experts from every field. So the first thing I want to say is I just don't understand the, the AAO's motivation to hide anything that they might have found. So that, I, I had a feeling when I was there that they were being completely open, and and everybody was talking there and said, hey, we've got all the papers. They looked at everything from every side. That's number one. Number two, the reason why I decided to write what I wrote was because as I looked around the room, I realized that some of the people who really know a lot about sleep apnea and who actually speak about it and talk about it, a lot of them weren't even in the room. They didn't even show up, and I knew a lot of other people who are interested in it weren't there either. And so, what my goal was was to take the lectures from 20 different professionals and specialists who were there, and to put it into a readable format, because there was no way to condense everything. I mean, if you took uh, it was eight hours the first day, eight hours the second day, and it was four hours the third day, so there you got 20 hours. I thought a lot of the people would start off with definitions and then they would go into it. And so there was a lot of overlap. So my goal was to kind of do like a, a cliff notes yep. for myself. And then I had a couple people ask, well, would you share your notes with me? And so I actually, for those who were down there, man, it rained and rained and rained. I got delayed by six hours down in Florida and then three additional hours uh, in Texas. And so I had about 12 hours in an airport and on airplanes. And so it's about almost 18 hours. I wrote the whole thing before I even go back to New Mexico. <laughs> I had a couple of the guys that were there with me. I said, hey, take a look at this. See if there's anything that I've missed. See if I have misinterpreted everything. So that was the reason I did it. And then I posted it on two groups on Facebook because that's how people get their information a lot of times. And I wanted to make sure that that wasn't missed. And so by, po- by posting it, I think it was 21 paragraphs and 21 separate posts. Uh, a lot of people took the time to look at it. Right. Diagnostically, that, this is back to your question now, the, the take-home message, and I'm just going to just tell you what my take-home was, was that there's really only one way to diagnose uh, sleep apnea, and that has to do with polysomnography. That's it. So polysomnography is really the only way, and that's doing a sleep study. Man, that is a complex thing. It has to do. There's brain waves they look at, there's how your chest rises and falls, there's the O2 levels in your blood. There's all kinds of things going on there. What we learned was is that orthodontists are neither trained on how to prescribe those, read those. In fact, we can't prescribe them. We're not, we're not qualified to do that. There are a lot of other things that might tip you off to them. I mean, I, I think that I mentioned to you the other day, uh, I'm kind of an avid bowler. And I was at the bowling alley, and next to me, in the lane next uh, adjacent to me, there was a gentleman that was about three hundred and fifty pounds. And I mean, I could I could kind of hear him breathing as he was sitting there, and he he would get up. But what I noticed was, when he would sit down, when it wasn't his turn, he would fall asleep in the chair. And I thought, you know, one of the one of the things we learned about sleep apnea is is that th- these these individuals that are affected by it don't sleep very much. In fact, one of the biggest problems with it is it causes a lot of automobile accidents. Right. I can imagine this, this gentleman falling asleep behind the wheel. I can imagine him falling asleep at stop signs and at, at traffic lights because he was falling asleep in a bowling alley with loud music and pins crashing against balls and stuff. So anyway, there are things we can look at. There's risk factors. We can tell a lot that way. But the take-home message was is that we're not qualified as orthodontists to really diagnose sleep apnea. What we did learn was that we are in a perfect position, because of the people that come and see us, to screen for sleep apnea. Uh, Dr. Palomo up at Case Western uh, actually published a recent article in the AGODO where he showed that the prevalence of of sleep apnea patients is higher in an orthodontic practice than it is in the general population. Now, some people might say, well, that goes to show you that orthodontics causes it. Well, if you think about it, that's when they came in the door. What we think is that because of some of the, the breathing difficulties and some of that the, the things that go along with sleep apnea and breathing disorders, they just have a higher prevalence of, of orthodontic problems. So the two things that, that I use in my practice now since the meeting, I took a copy of the Pediatric Sleep Questionnaire, uh, which was developed at the University of Michigan, and, and you can find it online. Uh, the actual Moyer Symposium a few years ago was about sleep apnea, and that entire book from the from the Moyer symposium can be downloaded you can read a lot of the speakers that spoke here you can read their findings you can see all the the pictures and things and there is a copy of the sleep questionnaire in there the other one that we learned that was the most effective for adults was a questionnaire called the stop bank stop stands for snoring tired observed uh, choking stop breathing things like that pressure meaning do you have a high blood pressure so stop And then the bang part, B-A-N-G, is body mass index, age, neck size, and gender. And by having each of the patients fill one of these out, and they can do it in less than five minutes, we can see at a glance, is this patient or is this child at higher risk uh, than the normal population? And so for me, that's what I learned. That's as far as I can go diagnostically. If I see other signs or things like that, I might want to recommend them, but as far as diagnosing... I can suggest that they see a physician who specializes in this.
1: You know, it's interesting. I treat some uh, sleep apnea patients in my practice. Uh, some of them, you know, also get orthodontic treatment. Some of them I'm treating just for uh, sleep apnea. It's a little bit of a part of our practice. And, you know, I, I tell people that I cannot diagnose uh, their sleep apnea, but I'm fortunate to be in a community where we, we have some sleep physicians who uh, work with these patients who, you know, do things like CPAPs and what, you know, when that's not working or when the patient wants a different option, they often get referred to me and I tell them, you know, I, I can't diagnose you. You know, I'm working here really as a technician, right? Uh, it's, which is a little bit of a different role for me to be in where I'm kind of following a prescription. I'm making you an appliance. I'm adjusting it to a position where I think is, is effective. And and we're going to do that based on your subjective reports of how you're sleeping and your jaw pain and all these sorts of things in, in terms of, and we're we're not getting into appliance fabrication, but, you know, and then I tell them, I can't even tell you necessarily that the appliance is working. You, You can tell me that your spouse tells you that, you know, you're not snoring or, or having these apneic events. You can say that you're not as sleepy. But you know, at the ultimately you know i can 't even tell you that it 's working you 're going to have to go back for a follow up sleep study, and that 's especially true if they're, if they're interested in like a commercial driver 's license or or pilot's medical certificate or something like that. So I think that the, the diagnosis of this clearly is not in our domain, but as you point out, I think being aware of these things and, and trying to look for these problems is something that I think we have a unique opportunity to do. So it's, it's kind of, a, you know, a little bit of a balance there between these two factors. But, you know, but I think that, uh, I think that the more that we are aware of it and, and we're looking for it, as you mentioned, we're going to be able to help patients, even if it's not a strictly orthodontic problem.
0: Well, I, I think that that's exactly right. Now, one of the comments that, was, that I got online was from someone who read some of the phrasing in my, uh, in my summary, And I think that I said something like, if you choose to treat them, meaning that if you choose to work with a sleep physician and they ask you to do an appliance, then you should do that. But if you choose to do that, that you should have the additional training so that you know how to do these, how to adjust them, and how to prevent the side effects. Because sometimes a patient will come in and they will have, dentally, they'll be class three, actual underbite. And you do a CEPH and you look at it and they're not class three. And you're thinking, what is going on with these people? Then you look at their health history. A lot of times, these people are being treated with oral appliances for sleep apnea. What we know is, is that a lot of these appliances look like a Herbst. And what we know about Herbst is that you're going to get a kind of a headgear effect on the top, but you're going to also get proclination and an advancement of the lower dentition. And so when I made the com- I made the comment that if you choose to be involved with treating these patients, and somebody said, well, why wouldn't you treat them? well, orthodontically I can treat them, but if I'm going to help a sleep physician treat them for sleep apnea, then I need to get the additional training. I need to learn how to make the appliances, how to adjust the appliances, and also how to prevent the side effects. They actually talked about making kind of a positioner that the patient wears in the morning when they wake up to kind of counteract the class three effect that the sleep apnea appliances have. So I learned a lot about that. My feeling is, For me right now in my practice, I have not been asked to create and treat them, but there's nothing wrong with treating them. I'm just, what my summary said was, if you choose to do it, get the right training because there's more to it than just making a hearse.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I, I agree with that. I've been to some, some excellent uh, CE courses uh, down at Tufts and, and some other things on, on the technical aspects of it. And, we, you know, we probably don't have time to get into it, but you are absolutely right that there are these kind of complications and, and other things that go into it. And it's an interesting part of the practice to add because, it, you know, you're kind of coming at things from a, from a different angle. And to be totally honest and transparent, there are times where I believe that the appliances that I've given patients have made their occlusion less. Less ideal. And I've told them that up front, and they're aware of that, and they're balancing out, and they're saying, I've got to do something. I can't wear this CPAP you know, the health effects of this are, are really severe and, and I've got to do something that works and I'm willing to take a little bit of a compromise in my bite. Of course, explaining that then to my referring dentist is also a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that that's a whole other discussion. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that our role in this in, in terms of the diagnosis, I think you summed up very well, uh, is, is a screening role, trying to identify these patients, trying to get them to people who can make a definitive diagnosis. Uh, certainly, if, if it's a their health. We want to get them, you know, into the people that have all of the tools and and all of the training to do that. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about orthodontic treatments. Is there any indication that we can perhaps identify a patient who's maybe at risk or who has, uh, you know, is predisposed to something like this? Are there things we can do as orthodontics to help them or, you know, to tell them that, that we can do something that will improve their, their breathing or their snoring or reduce their chances of sleep apnea. What, what, what did the meeting have to kind of say on that front?
0: Well, one of the purposes of the meeting was to find out, first of all, is there anything that we're doing that could actually be causing this or making it worse? Right. Okay. And so some of the ones that have been, uh, that we've been accused of doing would be extractions. Yep. Um, headgear. Yep anything that was a retractive type of mechanics. And so uh, they looked at that, and they went to papers from years gone by. They looked at uh, over 4,000 things. They got experts from all the different fields. Here's something that, that just surprised me. So the the first day, mainly we had experts from outside the field of, of orthodontics. Like I said, we had pulmonologists and otolaryngologists, and we had sleep medicine people and all that. Lance, it was, it was not until we got to the oral surgeon late in this first day that anyone mentioned the teeth. <laughs> so we're sitting there for at least six hours, and all of us at orthodontists were saying, now, you know, are we causing problems or anything like this? And as they went, each of them had like, like, like 30 minutes to an hour, just depending on if they paired up with someone, to talk about what it is and, and what causes it and all these different things. And no one even mentioned the word tooth until late in the afternoon on the first day. The reason that was important to me is because it almost seems like some of our colleagues and uh, some of our some of those that would attack us, they want to throw themselves into the mix. It's like, hey, us too, we want to be part of this. But talking to these specialists, they're kind of like, I don't know why you guys are even talking about this because it's not even related. So what the consensus of the uh, task force was, is that none of the none of the procedures that we've been accused of using have been shown to cause the problem? Uh, not removing teeth, not expanding, using headgear. None of those things has been shown to be related at all to an increased incidence of uh, obstructive sleep apnea.
1: Which you know I think conceptually maybe goes against what we might think, right? I mean, in other words. We, we think of this as, as being an, a situation where we want to, you know, increase airway dimensions and size and things like that. So, you know, conceptually it would seem that maybe the opposite is true, but in, re- in reviewing the research, it doesn't seem to be anything that's, that's shown that in, in, in the studies that were reviewed and that definitely hasn't, uh, hasn't come out yet, I think, in any of the research. But
0: think about it this way, Lance, because a lot of what we heard there from the specialists was that they went back and reviewed our basic anatomy. They talked about the fact that the things that we affect in orthodontics are above the area. I mean, when you talk about the palate and the nasal cavity, that's above the oropharynx down below. The oropharynx is like at the base of the tongue and the back of the throat. You think about where the, where the palate is, it's up above. Now, we're, we, can, we can say, yeah, well, nasal constriction can limit airflow, but what sleep apnea is caused by is it's that little soft tissue pipe that collapses down by the base of the tongue. Right. It's not the tip of the tongue. It's the base of the tongue. When you see people who are struggling to breathe, when they showed all these movies of people having these these episodes, their mouths are open. It's not the teeth pushing back on the tongue, causing the tongue to go back in the mouth. They're, they're wide open. Yeah. And so if you think anatomically, what we're affecting is up here and what is affected by sleep apnea is down here in the back and it's the soft
1: tissue that being said it seems like there might be some things that have some some low level perhaps you know improvement i i saw there was a, a study here that maybe some, some palatal expansion, there's kind of some weak evidence that that might help or some mandibular advancement type appliances like a Herps could, could help. I mean, these, these are kind of weak studies at this stage in the game. But, you know, if, if there is a patient that has that, it seems like there might be, this, is, this needs to be investigated more, but there could be a role for orthodontists uh, in maybe lowering some of those risk factors. Did you take that away? I mean, I'm just getting this from the white paper.
0: What we saw was there were some articles where they had looked at those things, one particular that was really promising was if, if combined with the tonsillectomy, tonsil adenoidectomy. When combined with that, uh, doing rapid maxillary expansion in young children, it can kind of like amplify the effects of the tonsil and adenoidectomy. However, just doing the RPE alone did not show any promise. And so they wanted to show that those in combination seemed to be a good one-two punch. But they showed that there was no evidence that expansion alone uh, reduced the incidence or the severity of sleep apnea and that we should not, as orthodontists, prescribe or promise that just doing uh, maxillary expansion alone was going to either prevent or cure sleep apnea. So that was
1: one thing. I think the other thing that that point illustrates is kind of the need to work with another provider, right? To work with someone who can who could be doing the tonsillectomy, the adenoidectomy. You know, in other words, you know, as we kind of combine forces with our physician friends, you know, then we, we bring these tools to, to bear on the problem kind of synergistically.
0: I think that was exactly the point of the, the main point of, of the uh, second afternoon was each one of these doctors that were orthodontists that were speaking they were part of teams. They were part of sleep apnea teams. And they were not treating it on their own. They were getting instructions. They were having a tonsil and adenoidectomy done here. They were doing some other stuff over here. It was it was a team approach. And I think where where some orthodontists get carried away is when they think they can diagnose it and they can treatment plan it. You mentioned treatments that we do that advance the mandible. I think that it goes back to, are we really advancing the mandible when you have, <laughs> when you have an Herbst appliance in there, when you have a Mara appliance in there, when you have a twin block appliance in there, you're holding it forward. But the research thus far shows that there's very little evidence that we're actually advancing the mandible. We're getting a lot of dental alveolar change and while while we're wearing it, we are helping them and there is evidence to show that it does help. but. Again, we're going back to: Do we actually grow
1: mandibles? Yeah. How many controversies can we fit into one podcast, Greg? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, i I think this is I think this is such a great topic. We we want to help. We want to be the best that we can be. Uh, we want to do the best for our patients. I think. And 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 when we, we become aware of something like this, I do feel like that there are a lot of people in our profession that are. Sincerely trying to find answers to this problem. Perhaps some of them are coming up with slightly different conclusions, and I think there's room for that. And um, if anyone's listening to this podcast and disagrees vehemently with, you know, kind of what we're talking about, I'd love to get that view on here uh, as well. But I think that... It seems to me that there are a lot of similarities in this discussion as with the whole kind of TMJ and orthodontics. You brought that up in, in your initial comments here that, you know, we, we we talk about does it help? Does it hurt? You know, what's our role? Uh, what do we tell patients? I think there's a lot of similarities there. Would you agree?
0: I would, and, and I feel that that was one of the main reasons for this uh, winter conference. What What I loved about this conference was, Unlike other meetings where there are 300 lectures that you can go to on all these different subjects, everyone there was learning the same thing, and it was very, very focused. And it was Dr. Hans from Case Western that actually brought this up. He said one of the main reasons that we had the TMJ crisis in the 80s was because there was a group of, of orthodontists who held themselves out as TMJ specialists. And they made the the case that there were right ways and wrong ways to treat people and that if you treated them wrong, it would cause TMJ. And if you treated them right, you could cure TMJ. Well, what that did was that got in the minds of the public and the orthodontists and the dentists and the lawyers that if if this gentleman, if this doctor is TMJ-friendly, then this one over here that didn't do it the same way may be TMJ-unfriendly. And the AAO's purpose for doing this was they wanted to come to a consensus on what does the literature really show? Is there such thing as a procedure that is not airway-friendly? Is, is there an approach that we could take that could actually do harm to these patients? And so that was the whole idea, was to explore those terms. Because if we put ourselves out there as airway-friendly or sleep-oriented orthodontists or whatever, it puts in the back of the minds of, of not only dentists, but also patients and, again, the legal community, that if these guys are airway friendly, then these guys over here must not be.
1: Yeah, I think that does uh, create a little bit of division that, you know, maybe isn't intended by people that are saying that. Maybe it is, um, but it is a little bit of a concern. So I think we can probably wrap this up. You know, one one other point that as I uh, read through this white paper that I, that I think bears mentioning is and I think this was kind of stressed over and over that the concept or the the problem the disease, whatever you want to call it of sleep apnea. Is more than just an anatomic problem, right? In, in other words, I think as orthodontists, we are very mechanical. We're used to putting things in the right place, and so when we think, when we look at an X-ray or we think about an airways uh, dimension, we think if we can just fix this volume, you know, make this pipe wider, uh, that that will that will solve the problem. And I think one thing that kind of came out was that this is a really complicated factor. Not only does it have to do with the hard tissue structures, but there's also all of this soft tissue and there's these muscles and what is the tonicity of the muscles um, what is the role of the central nervous system in kind of maintaining this airway patency? You know, there's certainly a role for that. You know, all of these other risk factors like, uh, you know, obesity and other constrictions that are going on there. So I, and then, and then we're comparing a static image to a, a dynamically moving thing. So I think this, this whole concept of just let's just make everything wider is a little bit of an overly simplistic view, one that appeals to us very much because it intuitively makes sense and because, like I say we're we're used to mechanically fixing problems, but that uh, you know this 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 is a little bit more of a complicated problem. So so takeaways, Greg, can I kind of top two or three things that that you took back to your practice that that you're going to apply?
0: First of all, I think you did a great summary. It's not just an anatomical problem, and even though there are some issues with the size when you get down to the oropharynx, if there's obesity, just the the fat pads that are in the area make it so if if, if the tonicity is lost, it occludes faster. So there, there is that aspect of it, but there's also the neurology. There's also the, you know, just there's so many things. It's number one takeaway. It's a multifactorial thing, and we as orthodontists, the, the main thing that we can do is work with those that uh, are specially trained to do it. If we want to do appliances, get the training we need, but at minimum, all of us should be aware of what it is so that we can answer questions. We need to have... Uh, I think in my practice, we will from, from now on screen every patient for sleep apnea and for breathing difficulties and refer those patients that seem to be at high risk for evaluation because that's the right thing to do. That is the message of the meeting, I think.
1: Yeah. And and uh, kind of tongue in cheek, I'll, I would say that that would make you an airway friendly orthodontist. I think if you're aware of the issue, if you're screening for the issue, if you're referring, and you're having these conversations, I think it's hard to you know say that you're being unfriendly. But maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll leave that alone and move on to the next topic here. Um, I'm not going to even touch that with a ten foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> we. Um, you mentioned, I think, uh, briefly on this issue uh, about not creating a division within our practice, being a little more serious on this, you know, uh, uh, not creating a division within our profession, excuse me, uh, between people. And, and and another way that you've talked about this that we talked a lot about on our first podcast was the concept of board certification, right? There, there are board certified orthodontists and there are ones that are not. And and we had a lengthy discussion and people can go and, and review that. And I think that was episode seven, if, if, you want, if you want to review our initial conversation. And since that uh, time, you know, there have been some changes that the ABO has made to the oral exam, to the certification process. And and I think I and, and probably our listeners um, would be curious to get your thoughts on this since you kind of took a, a vocal and public stand on this point uh, a couple of years ago.
0: Well, it's it's been an amazing year for the American Board of Orthodontics because it is something that they had been working on for years and years and years, trying to come up with a different approach uh, that was more appealing to more of the orthodontists. And uh, if you remember, the purpose of my article was uh, I, I saw the, the American Board of Orthodontics actually being used as a wedge between one-third of our members and the other two-thirds. And I thought in an age where people outside of or, uh, dentistry don't even know the difference between an orthodontist and a dentist, why are we fighting amongst ourselves? And so my point was we should use board certification as a way to bring us together and to differentiate residency trained orthodontists from those who just take weekend courses or who have no, no training at all. And so I, I wrote uh, an opinion piece for the AJODO, and it, it caused quite a stir. And I, I talked to my uh, David Sabbat, who is the RMSO uh, director, who's on the, uh, the American Board of Orthodontics right now, and he said that he felt like my uh, article that I wrote was kind of a, a burr in their saddle that caused them to take all of the things they had already been talking about and working on and say, look, this is the time to do it now. We're hearing it from all sides. And so they really did a great job of, of just taking the bull by the horns. They hired some people to help them uh, come up with a testing structure, uh, a company that really uh, spends their whole time writing fair questions and, and coming up with a way to really examine situations and, and figure out do people really know their stuff, actually to grade the examinations and say, was this examination very good at determining what these people knew? So they they took a huge step forward. I give them kudos. It shows that they they want the best for the profession too. Very happy about it. Last month, they did their first uh, scenario-based testing in St. Louis. The exam was absolutely full. It was was, uh, maxed out. They couldn't have taken another person. And they're doing another one in the fall. That one's already sold out. And the two for next year are already sold out also. So people really want to get in. They really want to do this. And so I think that, that that's a great thing. The whole idea is we want to be able to tell people if you want to get a residency-trained orthodontist, look for their board certification. If they're board certified, that means they've had the appropriate training. I
1: I, I think it's an interesting format. I am i can't wait to start getting the initial feedback from people who have taken it. Uh, I tried to sign up, but I guess the ones that I was looking at were sold out. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to learn more. And to the extent that it's scenario-based, I think I think that... Going forward, it, you know, that could be applied. It could be perhaps brought around to residency programs or done in a way that perhaps gets more integrated in with the curriculum of, of an orthodontic residency program to, to maybe include it a little bit more, make it more available, uh, you know, kind of as part of the regular training that we, that we receive.
0: I agree with you 100%, and I think that's the next step. I think that what a lot of us envision is we want this certification to be just as universal as when we got out of school, we took the national written boards for dentistry, and then we took our regional boards so that we could become licensed. What I envision is them bringing it to the residencies and saying, look, this is going to be the testing that we do that tells the world, this is a residency trained orthodontist. Here's where we're at right now. And I think that it's, I think that they still have some kinks to work out. The, The initial exam, when it was taken, they will be honest with you, people didn't do as well on it as they had hoped that they were going to do. <laughs> and, and, and that was because there was a lot of stuff on there that was a reach back, not only to residency, but even back to biochemistry and physiology and some stuff like that that you and I haven't used in years. Right. And so, what my feeling is, is and, and, and I, I will say this, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but one of the trustees who's been in practice for years and is a good orthodontist took the exam. He, he was a little surprised because he asked, where do they get these cases? And they said, well, this is supposed to be a representation of what's seen in the average practice. And he says, I don't know where these people are practicing, but not in my neck of the woods. Yeah. So what my feeling is, is they, they'll need to iron out some of the problems because in my mind, an orthodontist who's been in practice 20 years should be able to pass a board certification, board certification exam without even studying for it. Because right. what it would show is if he's done it 20 years and he's a good orthodontist, he, kn- he knows his stuff, he should know enough that he could pass that exam. I mean, he's a specialist. Right. We're not there yet, and that's my next challenge to the board. <laughs> and the last challenge I have is I really want to, the next step is to create a standardized credential that would follow our name. So you would be Dr. Lance Miller, DDS, ortho. And I would be Dr. Greg Jorgensen, DMD, ortho. I would love to have that because then uh, if someone looked at our credentials and said, okay, dentist, 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 orthodontist, dentist, dentist, orthodontist, they can't do that now. We had the head of the, uh, I was on the uh, committee for, is the strategic planning committee for the AAO. And the guy that was the facilitator was talking to us. and And just as an afterthought, he thought, how would my wife and I know how to find an orthodontist. We're looking through the phone, but we can't figure out who's an orthodontist and who's not. Is there something about your names that we can tell? And there isn't, not in this country. Right. So my next challenge to the ABO is, let's find a way to equate board certification with an additional set of letters that we can have after our name so that anybody in the country can say, this is a residency trained orthodontist who has been certified by the board that he's a specialist in his field.
1: I love it. I think that's, I think that's fantastic. And, I, and I'm sure we're not going to have many listeners that, uh, that would disagree with that. Greg, I think the first time we had you on the podcast, uh, we weren't doing our, our Elevate Express eight, our lightning round. So even though this is your second time on, I think we're going to run you through these, uh, these eight questions and, and get some quick answers for you and wrap things up.
0: I think I felt cheated all along, so, <laughs> thanks for including me.
1: Perfect, perfect. Well, we'll jump right into it here. Uh, in your practice, Greg, what's your go-to treatment for full-step class 2 patients?
0: As much as I'd like all of them to have surgery, we both know that's not happening. So I kind of look at the lower anteriors. If they can sustain it or if they can have a little advancement, forces is my, is my go-to. If not, taken out to upper bias still is in my armamentarium.
1: Good. What's your standard retention protocol?
0: Upper Essex and lower three to three uh, with a, just a bonded wire. It's like an O3O wire bonded to the canines only.
1: Who are your role models or mentors?
0: Um, in life, it was my mom and my dad in my profession, Dr. Bashara and Dr. Souther at the University of Iowa. And then after I got out, Wick Alexander, Rick McLaughlin have been two of my mentors.
1: And that's a great list. Greg, what's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Something in your practice that you love that you wouldn't want to practice without?
0: Even though it doesn't diagnose sleep apnea, I love my CBCT machine.
1: <laughs> what's the best vacation you've ever taken?
0: Oh, man, I'm kind of a, I get in a rut and I keep doing the thing, same things over and over. My family and I love to go diving in Cozumel. It's like our home away from home and I'm only four dives away from 100.
1: Wow, that's really great. Awesome. Um what's one great book that you've read recently?
0: Lance, I'm going to throw you a curveball. There's an app that I use that's called Blinkist. Yes. It is an app that allows me to read hundreds of books because they're 15-minute summaries each, and I have loved that. I found it about 6 months ago, and it just gives me a 15-minute summary, and if I like it, I can download the book on Audible or I can buy the book on Amazon, and I would just tell your listeners if you don't have time to read a lot of books, get the Blinkist app, pay the money, and they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of books, whether they're classics or new ones or whatever, and they just give you a summary. Great great app.
1: Awesome, awesome. What bracket system are you currently using in your practice for fixed orthodontic cases?
0: You know what? I have used everything from Damon uh, to GAC and American and back, and, and I always come back to my Unitech Victory Series with the MBT prescription. And I love the Clarity Advance for my cosmetic patients.
1: Yep, those are, those are pretty great. And, you know, here, here's maybe an appropriate question. What's one area of orthodontics that uh, you'd like to learn more about going forward in the new year?
0: Well, I'll tell you, my son Brent is joining me in December. And so I've got to learn how to, uh, how to uh, scale a practice, how to bring an associate on, how to do the kinds of things you have to do when you're not the only chef in the kitchen.
1: Yeah, That's that is a a big topic and there's a lot to unpack there. So uh, maybe if we ever come back for a third podcast, we'll uh, we'll talk about some of those issues. But Greg, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the podcast again, uh, for taking the time to kind of inform us a little bit about this meeting and for for all of your efforts to kind of advance our our profession. You know, I know you're you're reachable on Facebook. If people you know have a question for you or or want to send you some hate mail, what's the best way to, to reach you?
0: They can always email me from my website, info at jorgensenorthodontics.com. I'm also, you can just look me up on the internet, Greg Jorgensen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Actually, Rio Rancho.
1: Perfect. Greg, thanks again so much. I look forward to talking again soon.
0: Talk to you later, Lance. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.